Hello, my name's Kay Goldsworthy and I live in Perth in Western Australia. And what do you do? I'm the Anglican Archbishop of Perth. And not just any old Archbishop, are you? Would you like to explain? <laughs> not just any old Archbishop. Um, <laughs> You're Superwoman Archbishop. Uh, no, 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 I'm not that. Uh, that's for sure. In Australia, I was the first woman to be, and in fact still the only woman who is an Archbishop. And what about the world? Where do you fit? Yeah, so um, around the world, I, I kind of had this moment where earlier this year I was at a, an international Anglican gathering in Hong Kong before the demonstrations began. And I was on the same table as Justin Welby. I was talking to him and said something like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm just... He said, you're one of the most senior women in the Anglican communion. And I thought, oh, oh my goodness me. <laughs> well, there you go. So the fact is that, that it's, it would appear that I'm the first woman who's, who's an archbishop. But I don't think that we should really count that in all sorts of ways because Sarah Mullaly, who is the Bishop of London, has one of the largest dioceses in the world, not in terms of geography, but in terms of parishes, clergy, complexity and all of that. Has your career always been in the church? Did you do anything else before the church? Mm-hmm. I did. I, um, so I first offered for ministry when I was 16 and uh, women couldn't be ordained and I actually didn't even know that there was any discussion about that and so I um, put my name off to Deaconess House. I rang them up and they said, oh dear, you're a bit young. Go away, go to university and come back. Well, I didn't go away and went to university. I went off, I worked for a cosmetic company um, then I moved state and I started working in a restaurant and then I began to manage that restaurant and I did that until I was 23 when I kind of woke up one day and went, you know, I could be really good at this and this could be my career but it's not really what I think I should be doing um, and I need to find out what it is that I feel God wants me to do. Uh, in ministry. So I came back to Melbourne, which was my hometown, and spent a few couple of months kind of wandering and wondering about that and until I said, you know, I think I need to offer for ministry. And even then, I didn't have much idea of what that meant formally within church structures at the time. So I did, and I was... um, Uh, lucky enough to receive an invitation to an inquirer's program, I guess, with a number of other people um, across a weekend with, I think, eight different interviews over that period of time. And I found it really absolutely terrifying in all sorts of ways. And people saying, well, of course women can't be priests. And I was going, oh, of course they can't. (laughs) I mean, really? And... (laughs) I I just had no clue. And the upshot of that was that I was accepted for training and formation. And then I went off to Trinity College in Melbourne to study theology. When did you realise women can be priests and more? Well, I guess around about the time that I was beginning to make that that step, I became aware that there was a... uh, there was a conversation, there was a debate, there was a lot of feeling... Um, people were quite passionate either for or against uh, in Australia and, and further around the world. And so it was in my second year of training that I came to the point where I went, you know what, I think I'm being called to be a priest. And 
And as I say to people, once you've said that, you can't stuff the words back in your mouth. You know, <laughs> that's how it is. You've said it. It's out there. I was made a deaconess in 1984, and then um, women through 1985, uh, it became possible for women to be ordained deacons, and I was in the first group with Kate Proud of women who were ordained as deacons, and that was at St Paul's in Melbourne. And then two years after that, we came to Perth, and I became a chaplain in a girls' school. And then it just so happened that in 1992, the first group of women to be ordained as priests was a group of women in Perth, of which I was one. So I've had this kind of been at the forefront of the ordination um, pathway. And then in 2008, I was the first woman in Australia in the Anglican Church to be made a bishop. So that is just, you have to come to a point where you say, that's how it is. This is, you've got this kind of pioneer place. So you have to take hold of that and allow it, yeah. What's it taken from a character point of view to be at the forefront of all of that? Well, I've, it's interesting because until being ordained a bishop, I was never ordained alone. We ordain groups of people as deacons, as priests. It is when people are ordained a bishop that that's one person being ordained into a particular order of ministry. So I felt very much part of a really energised and strong group of women and men who were absolutely in favour and affirming um, of women's ordination to all three orders of ministry. And the way that it works is that to be a deacon, it is assumed that you could become a priest. And to be a priest, it is assumed that you could be a bishop. So one of the unintended consequences of ordaining women as deacons was the assumption, well, why not priests? You know, uh, that's, that's how this works. What type of personality are you? How would you describe yourself to have gone through all of that over the last however many years? <sighs> um, I, look, I guess I'm fairly determined. Who knew? And, and I'm, I'm certainly patient. And isn't that great? Because it's a gift of the spirit, which has been growing over the years, let me tell you. But <laughs> it's listed as a fruit of the spirit, patience. There, there it is. Who knew? Anyway, and um, I'm optimistic. I am an optimistic person. And I've simply had this unwavering belief that God called me to ministry. I'm a cradle Anglican. I had a little time in a sort of out there in a Pentecostal church. Well, forget that. That wasn't going to work. I'm just sort of like, where, where are the women in Pentecostal churches? There are now a few in leadership, but it is actually quite difficult. I'm an Anglican. I'm scripture, tradition, reason, and I'm sacramental. I'm shaped through the way that scripture and prayer work together. I'm shaped by an Anglican understanding of Christians in the world. And I think... You know, what Rowan Williams talks about in terms of how it is that, that the church is in civil society and helps society be civil in many ways. Um, I don't remember the question now. <laughs> I was asking you what type of personality oh, you are yeah. because you always revert to talking about the church even when you talk about you, which makes me think they're one and the same thing. It runs right through you. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are moments when the church isn't my favourite space. 
Um, and it's, it's, I mean, right at the moment, it's really difficult. And I'm certainly aware of the kind of tension I'm carrying and the stress I'm carrying uh, at the moment. Like my little heart going kathumpa kathump. But um, somehow or other, you simply have to trust God. And you simply have to trust that God is in this space that we are in. So I know what I was saying. My, I've had an unwavering belief that God has called me to ministry. And that's that. Unwaveringly, I believe God has called me to ministry. And the church has affirmed that. So it's not in isolation that I've had that sense. I've had that sense of call. I've offered myself into the life of the church. I believe the spirit is at work in the church and the church has affirmed that. So as a senior woman in the Anglican church globally, how do you see the future? I might see it differently next week. <laughs> and talk again. The, uh... I'll come back, it's not far. <laughs> exactly. Oh, dear. Um, oh, I think that we are already in not a formal reality but a lived reality of two churches living under the one denominational banner. And I wish that were different, but it isn't. And what I find really alien I think about that although as a woman my lived experience in this church is that there have always been no-go areas there have always been places where I may not exercise ministry not as a bishop where um, when somebody is consecrated a bishop and all the bishops are invited I have said I want to be invited because there's actually a matter of order here. But I will not attend because um, I would not be welcome to participate in that ordination because I'm a woman. These um, exclusion zones, for want of a better phrase, have been operating since I was ordained. Um, and. And the role of women in leadership across Australia has been operating in this way for a long time. I think what's taken place in the last few weeks where a group of bishops, some of them from Australia, have gone to New Zealand to consecrate a, bishop, a man as a bishop into the breakaway group confessing Anglicans that he can't accept and nor can, I think, seven or eight congregations in New Zealand, accept the work that the New Zealand church has been through over 20 years to come to the place that it has come to on the matter of the blessing of um, same-sex couples or marriages, perhaps, would be a better way of saying that. And, and the language that is being used around that is, we are now refugees. The 21st century is in this space where we live. And human beings have come to a place where they've begun to, not only begun, but actually embraced uh, an understanding of humanity, which is that not everybody is heterosexual. And it has also allowed that those people who may wish to be in 
lifelong committed relationships with people of the same sex can formalise that through marriage in a civil way. Now, I don't see our church changing its understanding of marriage from between a man and a woman, but the question around who might be able to be blessed, whether that relationship can be blessed, how people might be prayed for with an AYED, not prayed on. How do we see the love of Christ at work here and now? How do we live into that? And how do we as a church offer that love to human beings in very different spaces from the ones that we would have acknowledged a hundred years ago, where people were killed, and they're still killed in some parts of the world, or put in prison, or shunned. So there is a real question, and some people would say, in the light of what I'm saying, well, this isn't a, a matter from a justice perspective. It is, um, it is a matter of Genesis, that Genesis says it's about man and woman, and that's it. It's a creation ordinance. It, that's some of the language that's used. And God doesn't bless sin. But you know what? God blesses an awful lot of sinners. That's the kind of other side of that. So I feel that this is a real moment of us. I'm using the biblical quote as rekindle the gift of God's power within us and a rekindling. So I'm talking in this diocese about this being a new season and about how it is that we can live together across difference. Now, when push comes to shove, I don't know how that'll be, which makes me a bit anxious, a bit nervous. And, um, and sad, really. I mean, there's a lot of grief in that. It just seems to me that Christianity is about love. And I can't comprehend when a Christian environment doesn't display that key Christian tendency. Over to you. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and I, to be fair, those who are um, convinced by their biblical position and understanding that this is absolutely wrong and sinful would say that it is because of God's love in Jesus that, that they are strong in what is being held because their concern is for somebody's eternal life. Well, that's what people would say. They did say that about women, though, didn't they? Women can't do certain roles and yeah, now women it's can. It's not only a second-order issue, it's OK. <laughs> Don't you love it? Oh, dear me. I mean, it is just women are second are, are described as a second-order issue. So you kind of go, now, how should I take that? So not even important enough to be a first-order issue. Not even, no matter what Genesis says <laughs> <laughs> you know, which, whichever reading of Genesis you want to take. Where do women sit in all of this? Well, it's a second-order issue. It's not about salvation. However, the issue of marriage, that's a, a first-order creation ordinance. So that's where people are. I think that um, I don't live, none of us live, in the same world that the first 
followers and learners with Jesus, the first disciples lived in. We don't live in a world which is flat. We don't live in a world in which it would appear that it is clear that people did not have a sense of um, homosexuality as we do, but a sense of sexual acts which were not acceptable. And that probably has to do with how women were treated sexually throughout the biblical witness. There are many things that are, I think, categorised differently, understood differently or understood. Now, I do understand that those people who are really against both marriage and blessings speak also from the perspective of communities in countries in the world where this is absolutely kind of scandalous, where the shame uh, is, is writ large, and their concern for the mission of the church in those communities is very real. And I don't have any easy answer to that, apart from the constant work that needs to be done about relationship and care alongside each other. This has been a great couple of days gathering, gathering a lot of women together and hearing their thoughts and their needs for how they progress and how they do their jobs well. What do women bring to the table, do you think? Oh, well, look, we bring ourselves. And, um, do we hold the baby differently? Well, maybe we do, but we hold it just as safely. Somebody said to me a little while ago, a man, uh, not ordained, but said, what do you think about the feminisation of the church? And I can't set up and I said I don't think you mean that since women have been in roles of leadership the church has become feminised do you? Oh, and he said oh no no I don't mean that but I think that some people might perceive that and isn't that an easy thing to do? That's, that's not doing the work really because the work of, a, um, of the church is that you look out and you say who's missing? If Jesus' message of love is truly inclusive, if that gift of forgiveness and, and what I think of as boundless mercy, which is terribly confronting to be on the receiving end of, if that is as much as for anybody else as it might be for me, then every time I look out I have to think, who's missing? Who's not here? Who are we not speaking to? In some ways I think that... that uh, women have been part of offering a new voice and of course for many women this vocational life has been about discovering their voice. So I'm all about wanting to mentor a new generation of leaders and I hope that there are others who wherever they are will, will want to be part of that as well. It's obviously a very responsible job being an archbishop how do you relax? How do you unwind? What do you do? Oh, I like to cook. <laughs> so I like to cook. So for me, doing that kind of, you know, a recipe and a meal, it's A, it's, it's, uh, it's something you complete something, because in this work you often don't complete things, or, or there are things that simply have to be lived into um, and unfold over time. Uh, and... And cooking is also about gathering people and hospitality, and that's uh, got a bit of history. And I do like to walk, but I've been incredibly unwalking recently. <laughs> 
how has your marriage adapted as you've become more senior in the church? Oh, um, my husband's been really, is really good and has been really great about saying, you should say yes, you should go for that. And once or twice he said, are you sure you want to do that? And actually he's been really, really helpful in that um, discernment. I mean, there have been times when it's been a challenge, you know, as he said, I don't do scones, but he does an awful lot of other things. But if I were to say, look, I've got four people who need beds for the for the week, he, he just says, sure, so when is it? And put it in the diary, so that's all fine. He likes to be in the background. He doesn't like to be in the foreground. And, uh, and some people have been quite cruel about him um, over time, you know, let's not go there. Um, because... Sometimes people want to make hay while the sun is shining for themselves and uh, all of that. And there have, been, there have been, I say, and I think this is true, that nobody is married for a long time without there being some, some periods where you've got to kind of readjust how you are. And, and we've certainly had those, yeah. When he came home last night and he yeah. was in his, uh, yeah. his get-up, almost monk-like get-up, uh -huh. but it's martial arts, obviously, yeah. and he made a comment... Uh, the purple robe always trumps the black robe <laughs> that he was wearing. Yeah, well done him. <laughs> He's learned fast. He's evolved. He's evolved. Yeah, we've, we've both evolved, really. Yeah, yeah. Could you have done it without him, without his support? Well, it's really interesting. Every now and again, I think to myself, Lord, I, I wouldn't be able to... How would I be now if he were not around? And stuff like that. So without being anxious that somebody's going to die or, you know, anything like that. I think there are many people who have to make adjustments in their, in their lives because things happen. Um, I'm really glad that he is around. Hmm. How will you measure success of your career? Oh. You like that one, don't you? Yeah. How would you measure success? Well, I mean, this is a, a life in which success is measured in what it is that happens that's out there and what you've been able to kind of give away. I mean, there's not like there's no ego around here. Of course there is. And, um, you know, I would really love to think that that people did somehow or another meet for themselves a loving God in some way, shape or form through something I've done. I always ask everyone about their favourite verse. Yeah. What's yours? Okay, so I, um, I love you, uh, John's Gospel, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And I think that nobody should think that the truth is going to be an easy thing, or that the path to freedom uh, through the discovery of truth is going to be easy, but it will be freedom. And, uh, and I think that, that that's a kind of verse about ongoing conversion about the way in which we again and again um, walk into the unveiling of truth, of the truth of God's love and what that means. So that's a really, really important verse for me. And another one, which is from the funeral service, is the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God's mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And I love that verse as well. If you had your time again, would you do it all the same? Oh, no. Ah, no, there are some things I would do differently, um, but probably I would do it the same. 
because if I had my time again, I wouldn't have the kind of benefit of this looking back uh, from this moment. I am a woman of a particular generation and was very aware that as a first, I needed to kind of really um, measure up and not close, not have doors closed behind me, meaning other women couldn't walk through them. So I think that I've, from time to time, had a kind of be perfect thing, which of course is a bad driver to have because none of us is. It's probably the reason why I need God so much. <laughs> Bertie Prayer is a Watchware Media production.